You're listening to Women Making Waves. It really is no joke when the White House calls your mobile asking if you're interested in serving as NASA's Deputy Administrator. And in some ways you can really understand why Dr Dava Newman thought it was a prank call at first. But within nanoseconds she figured the call was genuine and wasted no time accepting this prestigious job. Rocket scientist Dr Dava Newman speaks to Susie Thorpe. spent my career dedicated to trying to get people to Mars, which is a really hard task. And we will get there. We will become interplanetary. The very first sentence out of a gentleman's mouth was, well, this is the White House calling. I thought, right, sure, <laughs> it's a prank. It has to be one of my students. I became number two at NASA, the deputy administrator. But let me tell you, this is the best planet by far. <laughs> it's number one. <laughs> First, the computer was a mathematical genius like Katherine Johnson. You are a rocket scientist and Apollo professor of aeronautics and astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You're an explorer and aerospace engineer. And until very recently, you were deputy administrator of NASA during the Obama presidency. And recently known as the creator of skin tight biosuit concept. My goodness, David, lovely to see you. Thank you for coming along today. My pleasure. Nice to be here. I read that you have a really vivid memory of growing up and following the historic challenges and achievements of the Apollo missions when you're growing up. And that is your first memory of wanting to do something in a science-based world. So I was completely inspired by Apollo and specifically Apollo 11 five-year-old girl growing up in these beautiful mountains of Montana, but also pretty far removed from the space program or high tech. You know, you see those beautiful stars. And today we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo in 2019. So all next year, all this coming year, we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary. So it's pretty spectacular. Kind of goes full circle. I work actually very closely with Buzz Aldrin today. Michael Collins will be speaking together. And these are are really my heroes. Your family and your friends really helped you, encouraged you to get into the science-based. Do you think that hinders a lot of women when they don't have the backup? I think so. In uh, my family, I come from a family of teachers, but also I think growing up in big sky country, first thing we need to do for the young girls and boys out there or people who say, well, maybe that doesn't look like me. So I always start my talks off with, yes, I'm a rocket scientist and engineer, just to break the ice, to laugh. We know that people really do need to see themselves and people also need to have a really good sense of belonging. Now, if they become an aerospace engineer, I'm going to be thrilled. <laughs> but if they go on to be a, a poet or a painter, I'm going to also be thrilled. And that's going to help all of us really achieve our, our best potential. David, what about when you were pursuing your career and you were studying and then you got you know very interesting jobs, which I want to talk about in a minute. But did you ever felt that you were the only woman in the, in the world that you were trying? Did you felt that that was a hindrance to you or did you just, did it feel like a deflating moment? So I've, so I've always been in a minority in that sense in my career, my academic career, my intellectual choice. But I never took it as a hindrance. I actually took it as a challenge. But I was always one of two in my undergraduate aerospace class. Two two women out of 40. Good thing is she's my best friend. <laughs> but, um, yeah, four of us started, four women, and then two dropped. 
you know, spend my career dedicated to trying to get people to Mars, which is a really hard task. And we will get there. We will become interplanetary. But we need everybody. And the more excellent is the more diverse and the more most inclusive team that I can ever put together. So at the end of the day, it's because it actually makes me better and it makes my work better if I get people who don't look like and don't think like me. Mm. And I always ask this and I either get uh, very sort of dismissive answers, but quotas. Do you believe in women quotas or do you believe? No, no, no. quotas, but goals. So okay. in as my at MIT, and our, uh, we're a very much a science and technology institute, <laughs> but we have wonderful humanities and linguistics, but we have 48% undergraduate women. So there's no quotas. We just are, there's just parity, but we're not there at the graduate level, the faculty level. We're definitely not there. How do your students perceive you? I think they would perceive me as being friendly, being definitely an explorer, a dreamer, and I'm also trying to make them reach their best potential. Yeah, we all love what we do. We're passionate about spaceflight, mm. about human spaceflight. Now, my partner and I spend half of our time thinking about the earth, but whatever we do, we, we're all in. Sure, they might say I'm a, a workaholic, but it's just, there's a lot to get done, especially when we look back on the earth systems, it's urgent. So um, not a lot of time for sleep, but there's a lot of time for you know trying to um, accelerate positive change. Now, one of the things I want to talk about, because it's quite a highlight, back in 2015, you received a, well, you received a call and you thought it was a prank. You have to tell us a bit about that. Because so, so it was actually 2014. Okay. And the White House called, which, you know, I'm an MIT professor and you have your cell phone and literally came in on my cell phone and it says um, unknown. The very first sentence out of a gentleman's mouth was, well, this is the White House calling. I thought, right, sure. It's a prank. It has to be one of my students. But he was serious. I said, well, I better sit down. And then shortly into the conversation, I realized, oh, this is actually really the White House calling for the president. Wow. And it's really the president's personnel office, so you don't get called by the by President Obama, but you do get called by um, and the head of the, the staff there. I became number two at NASA, the deputy administrator. So there was an administrator who was Major General Charlie Bolden, incredible leader, incredible mentor to me. I've known Charlie for quite some time, the last two, three decades. But what an opportunity. He was an astronaut and major marine major general. So we had crossed paths in the past, but of course we hadn't worked together, except just roughly at NASA. And so when I got to serve as, as his number two, as the deputy minister, that was quite an honor to work with Charlie. It was quite an honor to be in the Obama administration. And then the other really important person when it comes kind of to the interview and let's say getting the job was John Holdren, who was President Obama's science advisor for what we call our Office of Science Technology Policy. So it's the president's science advisor, you know, right there at his hip every day. Uh, Dr. Holdren served for eight years, longest serving science advisor ever in U.S. history. He served every day of the Obama administration. And when did you come in? What, I came, so I came in not until the last two years, essentially. Uh -huh. In 2014 is when I got the inquiry if mm. if I were interested you know if I were to be considered that's why I said <laughs> were you were you on the phone thinking I'm I wish I could just say yes right now but do I have to sort of look a bit cool about this and I said take a step said, would you consider I said yes of course no I said it in a nanosecond <laughs> yes of course I'm interested and then what happens is that's a quiet period because you have to be vetted and of course there's background searches and things like that my process was actually very fast but it can still be eight months a lot of it's you know public disclosures mm -hmm. all these things so you're kind of being vetted and sometimes that works out sometimes it doesn't work out for it's kind of a quiet phase just to see if it's going to work out then finally it becomes public so it became public not until November of 2014 when then President Obama puts my name forward as a you know, presidential uh, nominee for NASA deputy administrator the Congress we shifted that was uh, 2014 we had just had an election so it has to go through a full Senate confirmation 
Congress had just changed. So I got to get renominated uh, in 2015 in January. So it's kind of my package was still there, but they have to re-nominate you. Of course, I said yes again. And then from that moment on, from January you know, through March, I met with a lot of the, the space subcommittee, the science committee as well in the mm-hmm. Senate, met those senators, get to know them, see what kind of job I'm going to do. And then um, it was fantastic. They, they called this hotlining. They got me through, and they did a Senate a roll call voice, so all the senators get to vote. We watched it on television. We knew that it was time to vote on my nomination, and it was unanimous, which I guess it was the good old days. It was fantastic. It was 87 87 to 0, so everyone voted for me. And the great thing was I was with Guy and myself. We were in our studio, and I was there with all my students, graduate students. I would serve just those next couple years through the Obama administration, so there was plenty of work to do and get to Washington and, and start the job right away. You talked about uh, Tim Peake and his expedition, and if I'm writing saying you were working on the International Space Station for Expedition 46-47. Now, that obviously was fantastic. It was a great social media moment as well. Tim Peake is fantastic. Did you have other people, particularly women, that could have done that job as well? We, any astronaut basically can do the job um, you know, equally as well because they're so highly trained. So Tim's mission was important because that was a British astronaut. We hadn't flown a British astronaut for a long time. So working with NASA, working with the European Space Agency, we're just all in. And both of our communications from both the NASA side and European Space Agency side, we just want to make sure that you know it's high profile. We can get as many the public, kids, but adults as well, just mm. the public to make sure that they understand, you know, spaceflight is for them, their taxpayer dollars, it's going to exploration and discovery. And so he's so personable. I actually love it that he ran the London Marathon up there yeah. on Space Station. We had had a NASA astronaut, speaking of women, so Sunny Williams, Sunita Williams, she ran the Boston Marathon. She's close to, to home, to Boston. So she was the first astronaut, a female astronaut, who ran a marathon up on International Space Station. And was that the same time as Tim? She did it before. Her okay. mission had been a year or two before okay. Tim's. They do six, the astronauts currently right now, they do six-month missions. And typically there's six people up in space. It's still long enough to <laughs> to be up in space, yes, away is. from your family and away from home. Actually, I was going to ask you about that. What the, the in the press, there's always this big competition between the bigger superpowers like Russia, China, for America. But actual fact, you all work together to. I mean, you all have one goal, don't you? At the end of the day, and do the media are they good for this this role? Do they actually report the correct? information. I love the question. I wish the media would dig into it a little deeper because mm-hmm. it's really important. It's, I think it's the most important thing we have going on with soft diplomacy, matter of fact. So in human spaceflight, the U.S. and Russia, we've been working together famously for more than 40 years. We shook hands at the height of the Cold War, Apollo Soyuz, just reaching out. I've started working personally with Russian colleagues and their human spaceflight laboratories since the 1990s, and I was able to fly an experiment to train the cosmos, fly my experiment on the Mir space station. Mir is Russian for peace. And there we are, NASA, I was calling him called a NASA principal investigator, you know, a NASA investigator, a U.S. investigator, studying both NASA astronauts and cosmonauts together. And so, so my personal history is, you know, three decades working hand in hand with the Russians. They, they have huge expertise, huge excellence, as, as well as NASA. And I think International Space Station is really the right name. There's five main partners. We've mentioned NASA, mentioned Russia, but the European Space Agency, now that's 23 nations depending on how you count, Canada, and the Japanese, the Japanese Space Agency. So those are the five main partners 
but we've had over 100 nations participating, meaning flying experiments. So when you look at International Space Station, for 18 years, we've had astronauts living and working in space, and it really represents the world. It represents 100 nations of being able to fly an experiment, being able to be part of this amazing international community. So I think it's really a great model to, to move forward. Now we're moving on to getting back to the moon and, and moving to Mars with human spaceflight. Now in science, in space science, we have over 100 missions going on today. So we're exploring all of the solar system and then beyond. You're obviously, you are particularly wanting to explore and maybe one day visit Mars. That's the idea. But you call Earth home. Is it always going to be home for humans in the sense that we're going to pop all over the solar system? We're going to become interplanetary. We will have people living on Earth, the moon, Mars. But let me tell you, this is the best planet by far. (laughs) It's number one. So it's romantic. I love going to Mars. The, The real issue with going to Mars is we'll search and I think we will find the evidence of past life, maybe current life. But that's really important because Earth and Mars are both 4.5 billion years old each. So we're sister planets, and life worked out pretty well for us on Earth. So we think that Mars had life, was kind of wet, warm, wonderful, 3.5 billion years ago. Something went terribly wrong. And so it it lost its atmosphere. Today, Mars has a 1% carbon dioxide atmosphere, and it's very cold, not completely dead. We just found some organics last last week. It has some seasonal water. It has ice at the North and South Pole. But the real reason we study Mars is to tell us about Earth. The real reason that I'm interested in studying Venus, which is a runaway greenhouse gas environment, to tell us about Earth. So the exploring in the solar system is really so that we can learn much more about the, the three big questions I call them. Um, you know, where we come from, are there other habitable planets? And what about life elsewhere in the solar system? So it is searching. What are the one thing an astronaut wants to take with them that is personal to them? Uh, that's a great question. So the astronauts get to take a few, when you sending up mass is very expensive, so they get to put a few things in their pockets, basically. But it's the human, it's the wonderful, uh, you know, empathetic thing. So a photograph of their, their family. Mm. When some astronauts, some very close friends, have taken up a few little things for us, so... Actually, uh, Mike Massimino, an incredible friend, he took a little Buddha uh, for both Guy and I, you know, and so we have it home, kind of on our mantle piece, because now that little Buddha has traveled, you know, hundreds of millions of miles around the earth. The legacy, what would be your legacy? Um, what would be something that if you were to leave and go to Mars now, what would you leave in Earth at the moment? I don't think too much about legacies, but I'm trying to do while I'm while I'm here and, and, and well is to make sure that every little girl and boy out there thinks that they're an explorer, a dreamer, that really the sky is not the limit. Whatever they want to do, it's my job to help them reach their goal. They dream about going to Mars, that's fantastic. If they dream about clean water for the Earth, if they dream about working on climate change, then that's my job is to just help them. It's kind of like coaching or or mentoring. I don't have the solutions and answers. They're very smart, these young people. But surely I can help give them the opportunities so that they can overcome some of the obstacles that you asked me about earlier. Just every day say, this is a great day. I'm going to go after it. You know, every day, uh, you you know, some days you might have setbacks. Other days we really succeed. Oh, and I like to, I was so at NASA, I gave an award for failure. As an engineer and a perfectionist, I'm not, you know, too comfortable with failure myself. And also NASA, you know, we have these um, t-shirts that say failure is not an option. Really critical for Apollo 13. And so glad we, it was really incredible engineering to get the three astronauts back 
a lie from Apollo 13. But now it kind of has become the culture. You know, failure's not an option. And that's, then you become risk averse. Then you don't have innovation. Then you're not creative. So it was really about changing the culture and say, no, we are the explorers. We actually are the risk takers. No, it's, it can be, so it's a fail smart. I can tell this completely takes over your life and for all the right mm-hmm. reasons. Dava, how do you switch off? But we love to dive. We love to actually be in beautiful places in the world, so islands and big scuba divers. You obviously are very an advocate for STEAMed, which is the mm-hmm. science, technology, engineering, engineering, arts, math, and design. Yeah. I put in STEM is what people know it. But a um, really important message there, I spent my whole career dedicated to STEM, to mm. raising up, Nicole, especially for women, for everybody, but we're very underrepresented. So, but I call it STEAM now. First, I'm STEAMed. I am ticked off. I'm STEAMed. We're not making progress faster. We're making 1% per year. Well, you know, I don't have 150 years to reach parity. I won't be alive. So that element of it is I am STEAMed, but more importantly is I bring in the arts, I bring in design, there's 3D makers out there. If they're designers, I say, you're in, I need you. The artists are critically important, like all artists in the general, because they're, they paint the pictures, they tell my stories, it's the historians as well. Where would we be, turn those dreams into reality? And talking about reality and dreams, you said that you watched Gravity, the film, and you liked the, the flying part, you weren't too sure about the actual the physics but what about hidden figures loved hidden figures and the martian so i was at nasa when we premiered both so both of those the martian and hidden figures are probably the best examples of very well written books they really did a lot of technical work so they got the the background right uh margot lee shetterly wrote hidden figures that was six years of research she did so much research on our Mm. nasa women and to tell that story and needs to be unblemished as well a few people gave our African-American ladies, they're the computers, people are computers, which for all the young people out there, they don't know. First, computer wasn't a machine. First, a computer was a mathematical genius like Katherine Johnson. But uh, you know, her family had to move states so she could go to school. Young African-American girl, she mm-hmm. was a mathematical prodigy. They're, they're wizards, right? Lots of them were math teachers. And it was both black women and white women. But the thing is, her history wasn't written. No. So thank you right. to, to Margot Lee Shetter for, for writing that history on hidden figures. And um, now people know about it. Now it's uh, not hidden anymore. But there's a lot of hidden figures and, you know, all of the greatness because everybody's story needs to be told. If you had a book and it wasn't about science or engineering, do you read fiction books? Is it is it within your realm to do that? I do. As I read, so right now I'm um, reading The Soul of an Octopus. Okay. Is that fiction? <laughs> I really mostly read nonfiction exploration books. I've read every oh, exploration book out. I've always admired octopuses, octopuses if this plural, and being a diver. How do they think, and you know, how do they interact? So it's, I guess, a little bit of the psychology, and it's just a, it's taking me on a fascinating trip. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so Thank much, you. indeed. that interview blew me away (laughs) Susie you've been speaking to rocket scientists she was brilliant Dr Dava Newman amazing lady yeah she is an amazing lady and I'm so chuffed that I was able to corner her I literally stalked her for a bit just to get the interview (laughs) it's not like you at all no no not at all but I had to I was at an event and I heard she was there I read about her and actually I met her for breakfast in the morning and I asked if I could have an interview with her after she had explained who she was my jaw (laughs) fell to the floor I'll bet yes it did it's not every day you meet the deputy 
in charge of NASA, is it? Exactly, the deputy <laughs> administrator. And she was very, very low-key about it, but that's what made me like her even more. She had a mission about lots of things, including things to to um, look after Earth. And I love the whole idea that she, her mission in life is to find a way to Mars, but to look back onto Earth and to look after Earth as well. I found that really, really quite enlightening. It's something I'd never thought about before. What really, really pleased me, we were talking about Tim Peake, and she then said to me, Dr. Davin Newman said to me, that actually a woman from Boston two years before Tim Peake, who I love, and I think he did a great job Ooh, yeah. in promoting science and space. And to still all the is. Mm. Exactly, mm. and I have nothing against him. I think it's amazing. But I love to hear that a woman two years ago had actually run the marathon too in space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, it was lovely talking to her. She had a lot to say. She was a fantastic lady to talk to. She was very, very communicative and very keen to talk about it. So I enjoyed it. I'll bet you did. I'm very jealous, actually. I'd love to have met her. <laughs> we'll just have to arrange another visit to the US. Cup of tea. Yeah, cup of tea. <laughs> we can invite her for a cup of tea. We could, couldn't yes. we? Do you think she'd come? Of course she would. Of course she would. <laughs>